in prayer. Father, thank you so much for a gorgeous day out, for bringing us safely to your house to study your word. Guide us in our discussions now. Help us to understand this truth. Give us wisdom. And may your Holy Spirit lead us in this hour together in Christ's name. Amen. Um, we're going to look at is grace, faith, and the gospel. The concepts of grace, the concept of faith. And then, what is the gospel? What is the, what is the content of our, of our gospel? So that's where we're headed. We're going to start, after this topic, we're going to look at things like confession, repentance, all those kind of things. So we're going to get there, but we might hit a little bit of that as we go through this particular topic. When you look at salvation in the Bible, there are three major pillars of salvation. I call them the three major pillars that you see throughout the Scripture. Number one, salvation has always been anchored in God's grace, always. It doesn't matter whether you were Adam or the last person that ever lived. Your salvation has always been anchored in the grace of God. And we're going to talk about what the grace of God is. But that's always been the basis of all salvation. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, it says in Genesis. He wasn't saved by works, he was saved by God's grace. However, that grace of God that he has is appropriated personally by faith, by believing God. That's how one personally appropriates that. So although salvation is founded in God's grace, is it appropriated by faith, a faith that God grants. And the gospel of Christ, what's that? That's the message of Jesus, what he is, who he did, what he did, is the final and full revelation of God. And it consists of what we call an irreducible core of beliefs that you must affirm in order to be saved. There's an irreducible core. There's a lot of pressure today to broaden the definition of Christian. Um, there are those that want to say, well, if you just have a fuzzy feeling about God, you're in. If you just uh, you know, are in pursuit of truth, you're in. Um, the Bible says there's an irreducible core. There, there is a... There's a set of beliefs that we must believe, and if you go below that, you cannot be a Christian. An example would be for um, the bodily resurrection of Christ. I mean, it's very clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that if you do not believe that Jesus literally bodily rose again from the dead, you can't be a Christian. Paul says it very clearly. If you do not believe that Jesus is God, you can't be a Christian. So there's an irreducible core. And now, what we are to believe today is this core, this irreducible core. And we're, we'll, we'll sort all of this out as we work through this. Yeah. Yes. Point number one, it's always founded in God's grace. It's always appropriated by faith. And faith in what? That, that, that's the key. Faith in what? Um, just to say, I believe in God, that doesn't count. There, there's, a, there's a content to that belief. There's a, and there's an irreducible core that you can't go below and be a Christian. There are certain things you must know to be a Christian. Alright? And uh, it's, if that's not... The Scripture's clear on that. And we'll see that as we work ourselves through. Does the core also include uh, those things that would be known even without even without the Word? Um, for salvation, it's the person and work of Christ. That's really what the core centers upon. Now, now, you could probably say one of them is that God exists. All right, you got to believe that, or why are you here? Um, but when it comes to salvation, the core of our belief, the content, centers around the person and work of Christ. Who is He, and what did He do, and how does that affect me? That that's really the core of the gospel message, and that's what Christ or Paul said when we say. I preach Christ and Him crucified. That's, that's the central theme of the, of the gospel, the good news of salvation. But the question is, you believe in what? Believe in what? See, that, that's where the rub comes. It's, it's not just, well, I believe in Jesus. Well, let's see. Um, Mormons believe in Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus. Islam believes in Jesus. All right, that, that, just believing in Jesus doesn't cut it. Who is he and what did he do? And that's where you get to the core of the gospel. 
And we'll see that as we work through. We'll, we'll sort all of that out. But good questions. When you look at grace, what is it? Um, grace is God's unmerited favor. It's, who, it's something that is unearned, unmerited, undeserved. You can't pay for it either. You can't pay it back. Grace is something that is totally free. It's freely given to us. Um, Romans says being justified freely by His grace. Freely by His grace. And what happens is you study this concept of grace, at least when I was growing up, um, people try to make a distinction between salvation in the Old Testament and salvation in the New. Somehow in the Old Testament you were saved by or redeemed by keeping the law. And in the New you're redeemed by grace. And you even see this in the dispensational model where the Old Covenant is called the covenant of law and the New Covenant is called the covenant of grace. And there's almost an indication there that somehow there's two ways to salvation. If you study the Scripture, however, you'll find that there is only one way to salvation. It's always been by grace. All the way through. From Adam all the way down to the end. It's always by grace. Genesis 6-8 says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't receive it by works, by what he did. He found grace. God was gracious to Noah. Um, we see in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. How are we saved? By grace. God's grace is the foundation. So think of the foundation, the foundation of salvation is founded in the character of God, particularly His attribute of grace. If God was not a God of grace, there would be no salvation. So no matter where you're at in the, on, on, on the timeline of, of humanity, your salvation has always been affected by God's grace. And grace, by definition, is something that you can't earn, you can't merit, you can't deserve. That's the point of grace. If you can earn it, it's not grace. Works are an outflow of that. Works are an outflow. All right, they're a result of; they're not a cause of, and that's that's really a, something to keep in mind. Um, this is very interesting what you just said, and something yet again that I hadn't thought of about the fact that it's always been the Old Testament, New Testament, Adam, and the time. And I'm therefore thinking, <clears throat> what if somebody were to respond? I'm personally not responding to that, but I'm pretending to be everybody. Uh, what if somebody was to respond and say, but in the Old Testament, the only way their sins got forgiven once a year was through the work of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. You're saying it's by grace. I'm thinking I'm getting you, but what if okay. doesn't get that? Excellent question. If you, it goes back to what we studied last week. The blood of that bull and goat every year did what? Did it forgive the sin? Covered the sin. It didn't forgive it. It covered it. And in Romans chapter 4, for example, Paul uses David and Abraham as, as examples of salvation by grace through faith. Because David, when he committed that sin with Bathsheba, there was no sacrifice he could offer for that. That had to be founded in God's grace. Okay? And what Paul is trying to do is show that this concept of grace in Romans 4, he's shown this concept of grace is not foreign. It's just that you all missed it. The Jews had missed it. They had, remember, they had reduced salvation to a list of the things you did. The, the, to them, works were the cause of salvation, and therefore it was something that God owed you because you earned it. And Paul is saying, no, salvation is not because of something that you earn. It's a freely given grace gift from God. You don't earn it. That's the point. And what that does then is it reduces everybody to the same, same level, right? What if you wanted salvation but you were unable to earn it because you couldn't do that for some reason? I mean, that wouldn't be really right. But see, what God has done is He's reduced it all to the point where everybody's at the same level. You know, everybody's at the same level at the foot of the cross. It's always by grace.
because... And really, that, that is something you really need to consider, ponder, think on, work through. Salvation is always um, a result, or works are always a result of, not a cause for. And one of the ways you can pick out systems that proclaim the truth and don't is to get see where do they put the works. On what side of the equation do they put the works? Does works produce salvation or does salvation produce works? Okay, that's the important concept to understand. And even in Exodus here, with the, the quote here, God is showing his grace. What, what do the Israelites deserve? They deserve to be wiped out, right? I mean, that's what they deserve. But God doesn't wipe them out, does he? Because he's a God of grace. Yeah. But then the Israelites basically only, uh, they're, they're not familiar with Christ. Through no, they're not familiar, and we're going to sort that out. So just a minute, we'll get there. We'll answer that question. I think I know where you're going. Yeah. If they didn't know about Christ, then how, what did they believe in? Right. So okay. They, they, uh, was right. We're going to talk so about that. Concerned. Although all three were emphasized through the Old Testament, yeah. this wasn't yeah, we'll get to that. We'll sort that out. That is an excellent question. And I think it will clean up a lot of the confusion. So when you look at grace, what is grace? Well, grace is undeserved. Absolutely undeserved. No one deserves salvation. You don't earn it. You don't deserve salvation by virtue of your existence. And one of the starting points of the Gospel is to recognize that if you got what God... If you got what you deserved, it will be eternity in hell. That's, that's what you deserve. As a, as a lost person. That's what, that's what you've earned. So anything that keeps you from hell is by definition grace. Grace. It's unearned. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't say, I'm going to earn the grace of God. Because by definition, grace is that which is not earned. It's, it's in the definition of the Word itself. Uh, Titus 3.5, many of us have probably memorized this verse. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy... He saved us. Why did God save us? It's His mercy. And in, in, in fact, when you look at Psalm 51, that was the psalm that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba. David beseeches God for forgiveness and David bases his request not on the fact that he deserves it. He bases it on the gracious character of God. God, forgive me because you are a gracious and loving God. It was founded on the character of God, not on what David deserved. Because David deserved judgment. He deserved God's punishment for his sin. But he sought God's forgiveness because God is a gracious God. You can't earn your parents' unconditional love. No. Because by virtue of that very fact, it is no longer unconditional. Right. Now I love you because you are a good person because you did love us. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that Paul makes very clear, even in Romans 9 and 10, if you're saved by faith, it is not by works. As soon as you mix the teeniest, tiniest, itsiest, bitsiest amount of work in there, it's no longer grace. It's an either-or, not a both-and. And grace is unmerited. What does it mean by unmerited? Uh, it's not your pedigree. God doesn't care your social economic background. He really doesn't. It's unmerited. God does not look down and say, Gee, Schaefer, you know, Schaefer really deserves my grace. I think I'm going to give him grace. Yeah. You don't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve God's grace. I did nothing to earn it. I did nothing to deserve it. I can't do anything to pay for it. It's unconditional. What does that mean? God alone determines who receives His grace. He doesn't put conditions on anything. No. He is the determiner. God dispenses grace to you because He wants to dispense grace to you. All right, And it says in Romans 9, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. 
and compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that wills nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. It's not by what you want or what you do, but it's God who has the prerogative to dispense mercy and grace. He has the right to do that. He is God. He can do it as he pleases. And the fact that he does it at all tells you something of God. Because no, no human being on the planet deserves God's grace. So that means anybody could be saved. Yeah. Really, fa- you know, something really fascinating. I, of course, it's a little, little off the thing here. Um, actually, I have it on the computer here. Um, you all know that I'm a World War II history type buff, and I like looking at that stuff. And I was watching the Nuremberg trials, and I went out and did some internet searching on the Nuremberg trials. Um, and uh, I found an interesting post by the Protestant chaplain who was chaplain to these guys that were on the docket. You know, we're talking about Alfred Yodel and, um, you know, the Dernitz and, uh, you know, the big guys. And also of uh, Hermann Goering and all of those. And uh, he actually has a thing where he talked about his interaction with these guys while they were in prison there waiting, you know, not only through the trial, but also for the sentence to be executed against many of them who were hanged there in um, Landsberg Prison. I think it was Landsberg Prison. They were hung. And um, it was really fascinating that he talked about a few of these guys that he felt really came to know the Lord before their death. I'm talking about some of the baddies. Um, I can't remember the one. I think Alfred Yodel was one of them that he said professed a real, a real faith in Christ, a, a true faith in Christ. And I, there's a couple other ones that he talked about. Um, he, he had talked to Herman Gehring about two hours before Gehring committed suicide. And, uh, you know, Gehring rejected the gospel. He rejected anything about that. But I'm reading that. I'm sitting there fascinated. I said, wow, you know, here are probably, the, if, if you line up all the criminals of the 20th century, at the head of the line are some of these guys. And yet, what did possibly God's grace even do for them? Now, a lot of us say, you know what, that's not fair. Hey, look at you. Is it fair? Don't go down the fair route. You don't want to go there. Now, I don't know for certain. I, you know, I don't know for a fact whether some of these men really did come to know the Lord. I would hope that they did. And by the way, God's grace is perfectly sufficient to do what? Cover it. Doesn't matter what you did. It can cover it. And that's, that's the nature of grace. That's why these guys were not Toast them. I mean, we you know. Yeah. Who didn't want to go to those evil Ninevites who were as horrible as they come? Please, God, don't make me preach to them. And so he did every kind of trick in the book to not. That's absolutely. Because, you know, that's the way we are. We don't want horrible people saved. Yeah. Toast them. Uh, Fry them. And that's our our attitude. One step further is uh, just because they come to know Christ. Yeah, that, that's a question. You know, did, was there true faith? I mean, this particular chaplain believed that in a couple of the cases he did exhibit true, life-altering belief in Christ. He, he thought he saw that. I don't know for sure, but, you know, I can go by his... He was there. He was the one that was talking to these guys and witnessing to them. And that's amazing. I mean, what would happen if, you know, the U.S. Army tapped you and said, I want you to be the chaplain to these, you know, criminals that... That slaughtered millions. What would you do? Try to bring Christ into your life. I, mean, I would hope we would, right? But isn't there a party that says, "Bag this, let them fry." I mean, look what they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You can. You can. No, in that case, we certainly know that one of the thieves on the cross definitely did believe. And that's, the thing. that's why it's so great. I mean, stop and think about it. God's grace can reach the cruddiest sinner on the planet. We like to think that, you know, we, 
we earn this a little because we're not as bad as all these other baddies. Yeah, we're not as bad as them. But there's another one. Um, I keep bugging the guy at work um, because there's a, he's got a DVD and he keeps promising me to bring this. I'm just going to keep nagging him until he does. But it's a, he had some, there was a, and I forget the guy's name came to their church. He was the um, the one who founded Hamas. He founded that terrorist organization. He was like the number one big Islamic terrorist bad guy. Okay, he founded it, and uh, he talks about how he trained people how to you know slaughter Israelites and blow themselves and all that. He came to know Christ. He became a Christian. God reached him. This guy became a believer, and now he has a ministry where he goes around and talks about being transformed. Do you know what it was that transformed him? No. The love of Christ. Because in Islam, it's all about hatred. And, and he talks about how his wife, he became a Christian, and his wife didn't know what happened to him. She couldn't figure it out. But what brought her to Christ is she saw how he loved her. I mean, really loved her. Like in Islam, it's all about what you do, and if you don't do it, they'll slap you or beat you. And, and she said he was totally tra- he was changed. It wasn't, he, he, and, and she was brought to Christ through that. Folks, God can reach the worst, and that's why it's grace. And, and that's why anybody you talk to, understand, anybody that you probably talk to in your life is far better than all of these baddies that we've talked about today. So God's grace can reach anybody. And so that's what Paul says. If God can save me, He can save anybody. Because I'm the chief of sinners. And that's why God's grace is so magnanimous. Can you imagine standing in a, in a glorified eternity next to some of these great criminals of history who at the last minute found the grace of God? And, and they're put on display as an object of God's grace. No, we won't. We won't at all. Yeah. Yep. But that's what God... It's unconditional. And it's unsought. This is the other thing to understand. God's grace is something that people don't naturally seek for. They seek God for what He gives, not for who He is. Again, that, that's what Romans 3, 10 through 18 tells you. People aren't after God for God's grace. They're not after God for who He is. But they want peace, joy, happiness, fulfilled life, you name it. They, they want the goodies to go along with it. But when it comes really down to seeking God, nobody seeks God. Paul tells you that right here. There's none righteous, not one. There's none that have spiritual understanding. There's none that seeks after God. How clear can it be? You don't seek God for God. You seek God for what He gives you. And when you run into somebody who says, well, I was seeking God for many years, what they were seeking is like a fulfillment or some meaning to life or some purpose for existence. But nobody sought God. If anything, the Bible says God seeks us. Don't you think people can get to a point where they seek God, where they're sold out for God, where they live for God, where they want to serve God? Um, if you're saved. Yeah, if you're saved, yes, absolutely. Once you, once you come to know the Lord, I seek God for God. Okay? But I'm redeemed. Okay? A person who is not redeemed or not seeking God for God, they're seeking God for what He gives them, right. for some meaning or purpose in life. But I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah. Good. That's a good clarification. This is talking about people apart from Christ. Okay. And remember what Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. He's the one that came to take the initiative. And one of the images of people in the, New, in the, in the Bible, the Old and New Testament, is there are sheep that are wandering and they're lost and... Who has to come and find them? God does. God comes and seeks and finds that lost sheep that was wandering on the hills. Um, that's a very vivid picture. But grace is unsought. God is the one who takes the initiative. And that's the definition of grace. And grace is unmixable. What do we mean by that? You can't mix grace with anything else because you lose it. It's no longer grace. Romans eleven six. Paul is saying talking about salvation, he says, if it's by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it's no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. That's just Paul's way of saying, look, you're saved by grace, or you're saved by works, you're not saved by both. 
If you're telling me you're saved by grace, but you want to toss some works in, it's not grace. It's works. If you're telling me you're saved by works and you want to toss some grace in, then it's not by grace, it's by works. You can't have, you can't have it both. They're, they're completely mutually incompatible and opposites. Now, where does works come in? It comes in after you're saved. That's where the works come in. But it doesn't come in before you're saved. Yeah. Yeah. And, that's, and he's quoting Isaiah where he says, You guys draw near to me with your mouth. You honor me with your lips. You come to church every week. I'll use the modern. You come to church every week. You toss your offering in the offering plate. And you say you worship me, but your heart is somewhere else. You're not here. You're out somewhere else. Right. And that's that's the thing. That's a good that's a good verse. That's Philippians two there where it says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't say work for. It says work out. You have salvation, now what do you need to do? You need to work it out in your life. You need to exhibit good deeds because of that. And grace, this is good. Grace precludes boasting. What do you mean by that? When we all get to heaven in a, in a thousand years, when I walk up to Sam and say, what are you doing here? She can say, I'm here by God's grace. I didn't work for it. You know, It wasn't because I was a nice person. It wasn't because God liked me better than somebody else. It's because of His grace. And in fact, if you were to ask everybody, every redeemed human in heaven, why are you there? Every one of them would say, don't ask me, ask God. Because I don't know why I'm here. It's all about grace. It's all about his. And, and, and that's what Paul is getting at in Romans 3. Because, see, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel had this concept that God owed them. When they got to heaven, they could look God in the eye and say, you owe me this because of what I've done. And by the way, here's the list of things that I've done that deserve me, that make me deserve this place. And God is saying, look, I don't want heaven full of a bunch of people who are there because they think they deserve it. That's not the point. The point is you don't deserve it. And it's all of God none of you. And when I get to heaven and you ask me, Schaefer, what are you doing here? I'll say, why don't you ask Christ because I have no idea why I'm here other than He saved me. And that's, that precludes boasting. I can't boast about it. How'd you get here? Well, you know, I lost all my property and I was martyred for the faith. Well, gee, I wasn't martyred for the... You know, you have a whole... You have people have an eternal pecking order. How'd you like that? Here are the people that gave up everything and, they, and here's people that uh, were martyred and... Oh, down by the tracks across the way there, there's the people that just got in by the skin of their teeth. No, there's none of that. We all get there the same way, by grace. It's all God's mercy. And there's no boasting. There's no boasting at all. And that's the way God designed it. So if the foundation of our salvation is always founded in God's grace... And that grace is an outgrowth of who He is. That's, that's the point. His character. Then how do I appropriate that? How do I get in on this grace of God? How, how do I make it part of me? How, how, how am I saved? And the answer is by faith. God's grace is personally appropriated by my faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it's very clear. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Greek grammar, if you're a Greek grammarian, I hate grammar. I hated that in school. Then I tried to learn Greek, and I found out I should have listened to my grammar. That refers to faith, not to grace. God gives you the faith to believe, but it's a faith that you exercise. Don't ask me how that works. That's just the way it is. 
Why is it that you believe in something you've never seen because you decided that was a good thing to do? They have places for people like you. All right? That believe in Easter bunnies and Santa Claus and that kind of stuff. The reason that you believe is because God's granted you the faith to believe. He gave you a faith that is an unassailable faith. And that's really the, the, the whole theme of the book of Job is God proving to Satan that, look, the faith I give Job is a faith that won't fail. In spite of what it looks like around him, it's not going to fail because it's really not his. It's my faith that I give him. It's a faith that God grants. But from the human perspective, and this is where we get into this uh, sovereignty, human responsibility stuff that we've slogged through for seven weeks earlier, I do exercise a faith. I can tell somebody, the Bible says that you need to place your faith in Christ. I can say that. Now, ultimately, where they get that faith is God, but I don't need to go down that path. I can tell somebody if you believe. What does it say in Acts 16.31? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your house. Now, what does that mean? We look at that and say, oh, I just need to believe in Jesus. Well, this is a condensation. You understand that. Because implied and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is who He is and what He did. It's not just believe that there's a Jesus out there. There's a lot of people that believe in Jesus, but that doesn't get them to heaven. You need to believe in the person and work. And most likely what Paul did to the Philippian jailer is tell him a whole lot more than just believe in the name of Jesus, but who is Jesus and what did he do and why is that important to you to believe? That's all part of it. Mm-hmm. I have to look. I'd have to look at the text. I'd have to take a look at it. I, th- I yeah. I think the way to understand it, you know, a lot of times in, in the scripture, they, in Acts, Luke doesn't digress and give you the full gospel presentation that Paul gave the Philippian jailer. Okay. But obviously, if the Philippian jailer is to believe in Jesus, he needs to know who he is, right? He needs to understand what he did. And implied in Lord Jesus Christ, the idea of Christ as Messiah, there's implications to this. It's not just believe in the name of Jesus. It's, it, it's more than that. We're going to see that. We're going to get to what is the gospel. We're going to sort that out. We're going to sort that out. Yeah. Right. And to believe on him is to get to know him, to desire that. Right. To lean on. It's a regist- it's it's a relational concept. All right. And, and we'll we'll sort that out. But I don't know I don't have a good answer to the honor in. I'm gonna look that up. I'll have to look that up. Has N in it? Yeah. Act sixteen thirty one. If you indulge me, I'll look it up. Acts 16. The word here is epi, which is on. Epi, E-P-I, which is on. N is E-N. Yeah, epi is upon. The idea is epi is upon. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And but I, yeah, I don't think you can make two, you know well upon or in or yeah. I don't think that's one. The idea of believing upon someone is believing all that they are, what they did, who they are. It encapsulates all of that. Okay, so it's all part of that. But you need to believe in. And we'll talk about this. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get what is the gospel. So what is faith? Believe in God, accompanied by by what you do. That's both. Faith without works is dead, being alone. Okay. Next week, I did the um, the church uh, devotionals for next week, twenty third, and that's going through James. And one of them is what faith without works is dead. Okay. 
What is faith? Faith is believing God, taking His word for it, and acting upon it. What did Noah do? Well, Hebrews eleven seven by faith Noah being warned of God of things not as yet seen. What had no, what did what did Noah not seen? Rain. And not only had Noah not seen rain, but he could go talk to people who hadn't seen rain for a thousand years. And he could have talked to his dad, who knew Noah, who knew Adam, and said, "Dad, did Adam ever talk about rain?" No, nope, can't remember him ever saying anything about rain. Don't know what that is. But what? What did Noah do? He believed what God said. And he moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. He built this boat. Now, what would have happened if Noah said, okay, yeah, I sort of believe God's going to rain. It's going to rain someday, yep. And then he went back to watching, you know, Saturday night football or whatever it is they watched in those days and did nothing. What would have happened? Disaster, right? Yeah, what, what you see here is Noah believed God and that belief caused him to do something about it. The same thing with Abel, right? Abel believed God. What did God say? I want you to bring a blood sacrifice. Abel said, okay, I'll do that. Cain said, ah, the fruit of the ground's good enough. No, Abel not only believed what God said, but then he did it. And his faith was evidenced by what he did. Noah's faith in God was evidenced by what he did. Abraham left Ur. What did he, God said, get up, get out, go to a land. And what did Abraham do? He did it. Now, if Abraham said, okay, yeah, I believe that God will give me a land, but he stayed in Ur, that wouldn't have done anything. He got out. Respected God. Yes. Yeah. You do what he says. By believing what he said. I believe what God said, I'm going to act upon that. Yeah. That's all faith is. And, and, you know, we try to mysticize this faith thing and make some mystical ooh kind of thing. And all it is is just believing what God tells you and acting upon it. That's, it's as simple as that. But it also has to factor in without much visual, tangible evidence. Oh, yeah. It may not, you may not be... I mean, Noah had never seen it rain. He didn't know what rain was until it started pouring rain. What really, what really makes God happy, and you know, you, as you read the scriptures, what really makes God happy, if you want to bring joy to the heart of God, just believe what He said, and do it. Just believe it. How did Rahab? Hebrews. Yeah. How did Rahab bring joy to God's heart? She believed God. I mean, she didn't know much about Him or anything, but what she did know, she believed, and she was willing to do something about it. Which separated her from a lot of the other Jerichoites who believed in the power of God but didn't do anything about it. They're the ones that got smashed by the walls. She lived because she was willing to do something about it. And that's the difference between false faith and true faith. And that right there is how you understand James chapter 2. Because what James is saying is, you show me, you say you have faith, let me see it by what you do. If you say you have faith and I don't see any works there, I don't know you have faith. In fact, if, I, if, if, I, if the Bible says that Abraham had faith and God told him to go sacrifice his son and he wouldn't have done it, there's no evidence that he was, had faith at all. But because he did something, that shows me that he has faith. Faith is grounded ultimately, and this is the other thing, the ultimate object of your faith is the character of God. That's your ultimate object. That's ultimately what you believe in. You ultimately, whether it's the gospel, whether it's anything about the scripture, anything, you're ultimately having faith in God. That's the ultimate, we call that the ultimate object of faith, is God himself. Now, what, you, what God may want you to believe at any point in time might differ. But ultimately it's founded in his character, his truthfulness and his character. That's where faith is grounded in. 
We have the example here of Abraham. By faith he left and went. By faith Abel offered a better sacrifice. Alright? Um, and that's when we talk about the ultimate object of faith. Ultimately, when, when it's all boiled down, ultimately what are you placing your faith in? God. That's ultimately where it lands. Now there might be a certain things that you believe along the way, but ultimately, why is it that you believe it? Because God said it. And because He's God and you're placing your ultimate faith in Him. That's the ultimate object of our faith. It's only grounded in the person and promises of God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Remember what I said? You want to make God happy, just believe Him? Well, there it is. You want to please God, believe Him. That's all. Believe what He said. If you come to God, you must believe, one, that He is, that God exists, and that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So for those uh, convicts, those murderers, those telephone that actually come to a point where they want to believe, then that makes the Lord happy. Yes. That makes the Lord happy because it shows how gracious He is because He can save even the worst of sinners. Including Paul. He can save anyone. What does the scripture say, Romans 4, 3? Abraham believed God. Now, ultimately God told him to do something. He did that. But only why did he believe that? Because God is the one that was saying it. Ultimately, we believe God. So, if you want to be saved today, what do you believe? You believe what God tells you. And what has God told you? He's given you the full Story. He's told you about Christ. And that's what Christ says. If you want to come to the Father, you have to come through me because that's what God, God says, believe my Son. So if I want to believe God, but I don't want to believe the Son, that doesn't work because I'm not believing God. We're going to get to that. You just keep coming back to that. Oh, yeah. Do you believe God more today than you did when you became a Christian? I do. I have a track record of his faithfulness. Yeah, you start seeing it. You know, you don't hear about things, you see them in your own life. You know, and the older you get, the more you're going to see, hopefully, of God's graciousness. And, yeah. However, there's an immediate object of faith. What's the immediate object? Whatever God tells you at that time. The immediate object of faith is what God has revealed. So when God showed up to Abraham, what did, he, what did he want Abraham to do? What did he want Abraham to believe? Leave her, get out, and go. Did Abraham know who Jesus was? He had no idea who Jesus was. No idea the Messiah. No idea the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You say, well, how was he saved? By grace, through faith in what God told him. And it says God accounted to that to him for righteousness. God didn't give him the full story. Now, ultimately, ultimately, is Abraham's redemption based in the person and work of Christ? Absolutely. Romans 3 tells you that. Absolutely it is. But Abraham didn't know all of the details. But what he did know, he believed. Yeah. He... Um, you put the immediate object of faith in whatever God says. I think you should say whatever. The immediate object of faith is to do whatever God says at the time. Because that's obedience. And if you look at all your points, it's yeah. And that is faith and work. Mm-hmm. Faith is believing God, and the works is doing it in yeah. obedience. And that's really hinted at here. But yeah, that's a good point. It's Abraham believed God, and he left Ur. Abel believed God and he brought a sacrifice. Did Abel know about Jesus' death on the cross? No, he just knew that God required a blood sacrifice and he did that. that that's the extent of his biblical theological knowledge. All right? For Noah, he built an ark. He didn't know about Jesus. He didn't know about Christ. He knew that God told him to build an ark. He believed God. He did that. And that was accounted to him for righteousness. For Enoch... What did he do? He walked with God. 
You know, he, he, he went to heaven without dying. That's a pretty wild thing. What about Rahab? She believed in the Hebrew God. She said, I don't, you know, all I know is 40 years ago, he drowned the entire Egyptian army. We know that. And I want to be on his side. Now, that was the extent of her theological knowledge. Mm-hmm. Right. What was Moses? He had to leave Egypt. What about us? We need to believe the gospel. Why? That's what God tells us that. That's what He wants us to believe. He wants us to believe the gospel. He wants us to believe the good news of Jesus Christ. He wants us. There's a content to what we are to believe. And that's what God wants us to do. And all we have to do is say, I believe that and I'm going to act upon it. That's, that's the second key. Believing and acting upon. And true faith is always believing in God and acting upon it. That's always what it's been throughout all of time. So, what's, what are we saying here? The immediate object of faith is God. I mean, the ultimate object is God. Ultimately, you're going to believe in the character of of God, that what God says is true and accurate. But the immediate object is whatever God reveals to you at that time. And there is a progression of revelation that you see in the Scriptures. God progressively revealed more of the redemptive plan. What you were to believe in changed over time. But it's always saying, whatever God tells me, I'm going to believe it. And yes, there's an unfolding in the redemptive history of what that is. But the point is, whatever God says, I believe. And I'm going to act upon it. And that's been true throughout history. So what is the gospel? What is it? We talk, we, we toss the gospel around, right? And, you know, we have the four spiritual laws and we have different incarnations of what the gospel is. Yep, and that's where we're going to head. Actually, you read ahead in the notes, I think. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, it's a knowledge. What is the gospel? The gospel today, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, is a knowledge of the person and work of Christ. Who is Jesus and what did he do? And implied in that is, what does it mean to me? What does it mean to me? Well, who is Jesus? It's God. He's God. Can you be a Christian and not believe Jesus is God? No. So any cult, any, any system out there that denies the full deity of Christ, they are not Christians regardless of what they say. So when the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints knocks at your door and say they are Christians but they deny the deity of Christ. They're not Christian. They can say they're Christian until they're blue in the face. But the Bible says if you deny Jesus as God, you cannot be a Christian. You can't. That's a, that's a deal breaker. Now, you may not understand all that means, right? That's what we've sorted out in Christology. Because in our finite human minds, we, not, we don't understand, well, wait a minute, how can he be fully God and fully man? Look, what does the Bible say? Jesus is... God, if you do not believe that I am, John 8, you're going to die in your sins. Who is Jesus Christ identifying himself with? I am of the Old Testament. Every Jew there knew exactly what he was saying because they picked up stones to kill him. So when some guy comes along and says, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, they're not reading their Bible. He claimed to be God. He claimed that. He made that claim. And he accepted worship as God. Go back and look at our Christology notes. He accepted worship as God. He did the deeds of God. He had the attributes of God. That's God. What about those who are Jesus only? What do you mean Jesus only? They simply believe that, first of all, you get baptized in the name of Jesus. They love Acts 2.38 with a passion because it's a huge statement. And uh, Jesus only is simply against the Trinity. They don't believe in the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, baptism. 
Do they, the nickname Jesus only. Do they believe in the Trinity? They do. They. We'll have to look at it some more. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that that that's modalism and things like that. We talked about that in Christology. Go back and get those notes, dig those notes out, or go to the website. We sorted through all of that. Um, Jesus is God. God the Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. They're all God. There's a Trinity. I don't understand it. But I, but listen, if I believe God and God says He's a Trinity, what do I do? I believe Him. I don't understand it. It's okay. Do you believe it? Yes. Okay, fine. Isaiah 9 6 says that his name shall be called one of a counselor, the mighty God. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? The child that's born is called the mighty God. Where, well, that should seal it right there. Look, Jesus is God. He's God. He's full, 100% God. John 8, 58. Before Abraham was, I am. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. And don't let any Jehovah Witness tell you that means he was a God. That's not what the Greek construct says. There's not a reputable Greek scholar on the planet that would allow them to say the Word was a God. The Word was God. All right? What else is He? Well, the Bible says He's perfect man, right? He was perfect man. He did no sin. No guile was found in His mouth when He was reviled. He reviled not again. When He suffered, He threatened not, but committed Himself to Him that judges rightly. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Jesus Christ was fully God. Jesus Christ was fully man. He was both. And we, we slogged through that in our Christology section where we tried to understand what does that mean. And I don't understand completely all of the how that works out. All I know is the Bible says Jesus is 100% God. There's no doubt about that. He also says He is 100% human. He's both. And because of that, He can be the perfect substitute. He bore our sins in His own body on the tree. He could be my substitute. God could not be my substitute. And a fallen human could not be my substitute. Only a perfect human could be my substitute. And Jesus was the only one who was perfect. So what do you need to believe? You need to believe that Jesus is God. You need to believe that Jesus is fully man. And you need to believe that He took your place. You need to believe that. You really do. You need to believe that He paid the penalty for your sin. It's a knowledge of what He did. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 talks about this. I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And I was buried and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now don't reduce that to just three little ditties to remember. Jesus Christ died, He was buried, He rose again, I believe that, I'm in. What does it mean that He died? What does it mean that He was buried? What does it mean that He rose again? What does that mean? Because there's a lot of questions that pop out of that, aren't there? As you look at that, it says, uh, died for our sins. Okay, what makes Jesus different than anybody else? That's a question, right? So implied in this gospel is the knowledge of who He is. What makes His death different? Right? Um, why is it that He could take my place and you can't? There's an implication in that. He died according to the Scriptures. That means that somewhere in the Bible it had to be mentioned that this was going to happen. There has to be a knowledge of that. He, he really died. He didn't just swoon. He didn't just pass out. He actually physically died. He was buried. What does that tell you? He was really dead. 
Yeah. I mean, he he really was dead. He wasn't swooned. He wasn't unkind. He was dead. And that says he rose again. What does that mean? Well, why did he rise again? What makes his? How is it that he was able to rise again from the dead? How does that work out? What, there, there's some implications in all of these things that people need to understand. That's part of the gospel message. How is it that Jesus was able to rise again from the dead? Because he's God. He can do that. If he's not God, he doesn't rise again from the dead. But as, a, as man, he had to be man because of God can't die. See, there's implications in all of this. It's not, and that's why there's an irreducible core. So it's the knowledge of what he did. It's the knowledge of what he can do. What can Christ do? He can save. Christ can save. Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Don't understand this. You don't get to God any other way. There are people today that want to say, well, if you have a warm, fuzzy feeling about God or you're seeking God or you're sincere, whatever that sincerity is, God will let you into heaven. No. What does Christ say? If you don't come through me, you don't get in. Don't let anybody reduce the gospel down to just having a warm, fuzzy feeling about God. A lot of people do this. John 3, 14 through 16, like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. What do you believe? You believe what Jesus did. And that He can save you. He took your place. He paid the penalty for your sin. He was the perfect substitute and sacrifice for it. He can save you. No, listen, He is able to save them to the uttermost that come to Him. He's able to save anybody and be able to save them fully because He was the perfect substitute. He took my place. So what's part of the gospel? Part of the gospel is understanding Jesus not only is God, He's only, not only man, He not only took my place on the cross, but He is able to save me. He can do that. He can. He can, he can do that. It, and only He can save there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we are, we must be saved. Not only that, He can keep us. That's, this is a nice thing. Not only can He save us, but once we're saved, He has the power to keep us. And that goes back to the eternal security question. He can keep us. John 10, 27-31 My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You can't be plucked out of the hand of God. Now, some people say, yeah, you can't be plucked out, but you can jump out. No, don't go there. What's this saying? You can't lose that. When you come to Christ... And God, by faith, when you believe the gospel, when you go from death to life, that is an irreversible transaction. You cannot be unsaved. Which is different from being out of fellowship. Yeah, you can be out of fellowship. You can be in sin, but you can't be unsaved. Alright? Right. The apostate never had it in the first place. It's a knowledge of the condition of man. So you've got to know who God is. You've got to know who Jesus is. You've got to know what He did, what He's able to do. But you need to understand what you are, right? What are you? You're unable to save yourself. If you think you can save yourself, why do you need a Savior? Right? I'm not going to have a doctor come up to me and say, you know, I want to cut you open and see what's in there and just see if there, I might you know, find something interesting. No, I'm not going to do that. Now, if he comes to, you know, you got a tumor in you and I need to open you up and cut it out, okay, fine, go at it. But i got to be convinced of the need before I'm going to be convinced of the cure. The Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. All of us are in sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're totally lost. We are totally lost. And we're so lost, we can't find our way back. We can't save ourselves. We have to have somebody save us. And that's one of the things, there's, there's a movement in Christianity that says, well, 
for Pete's sake, you don't want to tell people they're sinners and they're under the judgment of God because that really is a slam against their self-esteem. Look, what does the Bible say? If you don't acknowledge that you're a sinner, you can't be saved because you have no need of it. And that's sort of what Christ told the Pharisees. He said, you, you, you see, therefore I can't help you. You don't recognize your own blindness. I can't help you. I can't help you. You need to recognize. And that's why whenever you present the gospel to someone, you need to bring them to the point that they understand that they are a sinner condemned under God's law and they can't save themselves. And that's why God has the provision for them. That's what Paul does in Romans chapter 1 where he spends Romans 1, 2, and half of 3 showing how every human being is guilty before God before he even gets to the point of being justified. Because until you see yourself as a sinner, you don't need the cure. Yeah, we got to be careful in that. You know, I could walk up to the average pagan on the street and say, you know, you're lost, you can't save yourself, and you're going to fry in hell forever. That's true, right? Probably that's not the way to approach it. Although you can say it in truth, you know. Christ did that. He told them the truth, but He told them in love. So we need, we, it's, it's a tone, too. But, but you need to bring the person to the point that they recognize their lostness. And then, it's a knowledge... A conditional man in the sense that you're under God's condemnation. Because you're a sinner, because you're lost, you're separated from God. You're not, you don't have a relationship with God. Um, the wrath of God, in fact, abides on that person because of their lostness. And unless God intervenes and unless they believe, they will be forever lost. Because they can't save themselves. They can't undo the mess. God has to take the initiative. And so you have to bring the person to the point that they recognize their lostness and, who, and, and their condemnation. Then they need to understand the provision of God. What is it? Christ is our substitute. He took our place. He paid the penalty. We're going to talk about substitution and atonement in a week or so here. The idea of substitution is He took my place. He paid the penalty for me which allows God to then forgive me because the penalty for my sin has been fully paid by the death of Christ on the cross. It's not been partially paid. It's been paid in full. I owe God nothing. John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Take it away. Not cover it up, but take it away. And God can redeem because Christ paid the penalty, Romans 3.24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How can God freely redeem me or justify me by His grace? Because somebody paid the penalty for it. My sin. Somebody paid the price. And because Christ did, that allows God to justify me. God does just does not ignore my sin. Somebody had to pay for it. And that can be me forever in the lake of fire or that can be Christ, my perfect substitute. One or the other. And then some knowledge of how I get that. How do you get it? By faith. Believe. You've got to believe this. Believe that Jesus is God. Believe He died for your sins. Believe He was the perfect substitute. Believe that you are a sinner, lost, condemned. You can't save yourself. Believe that by, by asking God to forgive you on the basis of Christ's death, He can redeem you. And you believe that and you put your faith in that and you go from death to life. The relationship is restored. You've got to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead. You'll be saved. We're going to talk about repentance next week, but part of that is repentance. What does it mean to repent? To turn from your sin. To hate it. To change it. To not only change your way of thinking, but change the direction. Well, well, we're running out of time, but we'll get this more fully um, next week. Um, and then the final, I think this is the final slide here. We've talked about this before, but I put it up here. What is faith? When we talk about faith in God, what is that? Well, I use this acronym. There's a set of facts you believe. 
We just talked about that. What is the content of the gospel? There's facts. You've got to believe those facts. But that's not going to save you. You can intellectually assent to those facts and believe that, yeah, those, those are, are, are right. You can affirm. You can affirm them. But that doesn't save you yet. Does Satan affirm the facts of the gospel? Absolutely. So you need to know the facts. You need to affirm them. And then you need to take the second step. They're not only true in general, they're true for me. God can not only save men, He can save me, personally. There's a step to take it from the group of humanity to a personal level. He can save me. And then what do I do? I trust Him. I put my entire faith in that. I ask Him to save me from my sin. I repent of my sin and ask Him to forgive me. And that is the point in which I pass from death to life. I can, I can know the facts. I can affirm they're true. I can affirm they're true for me. How many of you know people that know the gospel and believe that it's a true thing? But they have not yet said, I believe. Not yet. That's not faith. That is not true saving faith. And then what's the last part? Hope. What's that? A present certainty of a future reality. I haven't got salvation yet. I'm not, sta- I'm not seated in the heavenly physically yet, but someday I will be. Someday it's mine. So that's uh, the gospel. Any questions? We're just about done on time. Um, let me give you a quick update on Donna. Her hearing got turned on this week, Tuesday. And um, the doctor was shocked at how well it's working for her. She was able to understand speech immediately. Um, and she's not been able to do that now for, I don't know, 20 years, 25 years. But you're not supposed to do that that fast. Technically, it takes you about a month, two months, sometimes even three months to start picking up speech. But uh, we were over at her mom's and I was, I was talking to uh, Donna and her mom said something off to the side and Donna heard her mom and understood what her mom said, which is just amazing. She, uh, she's enjoying hearing Stetson's paws clacking across the linoleum floor. She never heard that. The cat purring. She heard the cat purring. She heard the, the typewriter the, or the keyboard on the computer says that's loud. So she's learning all of these new sounds. And uh, it was funny because uh, we were... I got to tell you this, just as a, as a we, were, we went to the park yesterday to um, to Rocky River Park, uh, Rocky River Reservation, and while we're there, of course, I'm going along, and some ding dong's coming on the on ramp, and he's just matching his speed to mine, instead of going fast enough to get ahead of me or slow enough to get behind me, you know. So I'm going to hit the guy, and I can't get over, you know. And I'm sitting there muttering something. I said, "Come on, idiot, get going." And Donna says, "What are you doing?" <laughs> And I said, I'm talking to the guy next to me. He said, I don't think he can hear you. <laughs> but she heard me. So she was able to hear what I was saying. So, Yeah, I'm clipped, man. I've had it now. You've got to be careful. Yeah. And it's only going to get clearer for her as time goes on. So. You've got to be careful. Yeah. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, thanks so much for this day and for bringing us safely out. And I pray that you'd help us to ponder what we've learned and think about it. And thank you for your grace and salvation that is ours in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.